0: Thanks for joining us again, and let's get to the service. All right, well, let's jump into the word for today. I'm I'm super excited uh, to explore this passage as we kick off this new series called Apprentice. Now, in our culture, uh, we understand that term apprentice It's mostly, most commonly known as um, an, an apprentice, like electrician or someone, someone, it's basically someone learning a trade under the tutelage of someone else. So whether it's an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, a tiler, a mechanic, whatever it is, someone who's learning a trade under the tutelage of another, that's what we understand that an apprentice is. But the, another word for apprentice, believe it or not, is the word disciple. Which, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I'm sure you have heard this term of a disciple before. It's really the term that's used in the New Testament. It's what most commonly used there for someone that has decided to follow Jesus. And more specifically, someone that has decided not just to follow Jesus, but to apprentice under Jesus. The Greek term, if, if you're interested, I suppose, the Greek term is mephates. If you can say that word with me, methetes, and it quite simply means someone, a pupil, a student, someone that comes under the tutelage of another. And within the context of this, it was the disciples came under the tutelage of Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring some of the things Jesus said about becoming and living as his methetes, his students, his disciples, his apprentices. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm I'm really hoping that there'll be some revision about what it is that you signed up for when you decided to become a follower of Jesus. But I'm also hoping that you might learn a few new things along the way too, because we don't have all the information, you and I. There's always things we, we realize are different to the way we thought they were. And so I'm hoping that you might learn some stuff that you didn't know about what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, or you've walked away from the faith, I hope this series gives you a snapshot into all that we hope to asp- all that we hope to aspire to as Christians. And now I'm, I'm, I am sure that whatever your journey has been like, that there are some significant reasons. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's some significant reasons why that's the case, why you chose to either walk away from faith or. The reason you haven't you've chosen not to explore it at all but what i'm hoping my hope at the end of this series is that of all the reasons that you might have that misunderstanding what jesus had to say about following him my hope is that that would never that would not be one of the reasons that you choose not to follow him and maybe our discussions in the coming weeks might even be a catalyst for you to begin following Jesus for yourself. So where do we start? Where do we start in this whole idea of what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus? Well, I think the most helpful place to start, believe it or not, is counting the cost. And that's what we're gonna spend some time looking at today because, if I, well, let me ask you this question. If you are a follower of Jesus, does your faith have a significant impact upon your life? Does it have have a significant impact on your life across all the different facets of it? Or is is your, your days and your weeks largely untouched by your faith one way or the other? It's an interesting question to reflect on. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to phrase it for you this way. Would you see any value in following Jesus if nothing about your life changed in any significant way? Would you see any value in it? it's an interesting question to think through if you've been around the church for a while you'd know that in the late 20th century the church went on a bit of a relevance crusade it was an attempt to make christianity more palatable for our wider culture it it went to extraordinary lengths particularly in the west to try and make christianity or to show it really as normal as cool as trendy and as kind of really not weird and it's it's almost like we said don't worry we're basically just like you come along and check out this faith thing because we're not really that weird that was that was kind of the party line that was that was the pitch and it was functionally in many ways called the seeker seeker sensitive movement it was trying to appeal to those that were not a part of the faith by aligning and showing that we're more or less just like everybody else now don't get me wrong there's many great things that we can and probably should be doing to make sure that we aren't creating unnecessary boundaries for those that are seeking to explore faith but as we'll discover in the passage today there are some barriers that we weren't meant to take away why well basically because jesus didn't take them away And I believe one of the costs, if we're honest, one of the costs of trying to create a palatable Christianity is that we actually risk doing something we had never intended. By trying to make a palatable Christianity by appealing to just how normal we are and just how much like everyone else we are as Christians, what we end up doing, the unforeseen side effect, is we end up risking the creation of a nominal Christianity. And every day not really that interested kind of lukewarm type of faith and it said that the biggest challenge facing the Western Church at the moment and this is a bit of a wake-up call to us I think the biggest challenge facing the Western Church at the moment isn't all those that have chosen to step away from the faith or never explore faith in the first place that's actually not the problem the biggest challenge is those that would consider themselves Christian but are are content doing, being, saying, and living basically the same way as the rest of the world. The greatest risk to 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 Western Christianity is those that just think that faith is something you add on to your everyday life and then when we do so, nothing really changes that much. And so when we look at our life, the risk is that there's no marked difference at all. And some say that just makes faith more approachable, but, but the problem is, if we look at the teachings of Jesus, and, and if we look at the teachings of Jesus and the accepted rhythms behaviors and attitudes that exist within our wider culture there is absolutely no way that we can find alignment between those two things with any sort of meaningful integrity when we can when we look at the teachings of Jesus and the behaviors of our culture we cannot align the two things with integrity at all and so the only conclusion that we can draw really then is that one element either the teachings of Jesus and the calling to discipleship or the behaviors of our culture, the only conclusion we can draw, if we can't align the two things with integrity but we are trying to, the only result, the only conclusion is that one of them is being compromised. And I've got to tell you that our culture and its behaviors isn't the one that's compromising. But before I get ahead of myself, let's look at what Jesus had to say about all of this and draw some helpful conclusions for our journey of faith. So we're headed to Luke's Gospel today, to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. If you've got a Bible with you, I know there's some on the pews or wherever it is that you find yourself, I'd love you to, um, to open your Bibles to Luke. It's the, the third Gospel in the New Testament, um, chapter 14, starting in verse 25, and it says this, "...Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, they can't be my disciple either. And he goes on to illustrate it. Suppose one of you builds a tower wants to build a tower, Sorry, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete the project? For if you lay the foundation and then you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it is going to ridicule you saying this person began to build and was not able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Isn't he first going to sit and make an assessment of the reality of things before he makes a commitment towards it? And then verse 30, if he's not able, if he can't, if he can't defeat the other one or can't reasonably be expected to defeat the other army, what does he do? He sends a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. He knows he can't win so you try and and bargain a peace treaty and jesus says so in the same way those of you who do not give up everything you can't be my disciples now on the front end of things this is kind of it's a bit shocking and it's a bit confusing because we look right back up to the beginning jesus talks about hating our family talks about hating ourselves in lieu of following jesus And so I want to highlight a couple of things and explain a couple of things about this passage that I think we need to notice as we think about how Jesus approached calling people to follow him. So Jesus begins, if we look back at the top of the passage, Jesus begins by declaring, excuse me, that there is one category of disciple. Look back at what he says in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. No doubt he's doing healings. He's... He's getting on with the ministry of proclaiming the kingdom and all the good things that he's come to do and and that people are seeing him do some really cool stuff. And so there's a great crowd around him and he turns to them. And the the language here is an inclusive term. He's, He's turning to everyone to declare a truth to them all. And he says, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate their father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. But notice how inclusive he is with this term. He he sets this bar for everyone, not just some people. He says, oh, well, if you're particularly good or or whatever, then you can behave this way. And everyone else, you can sort of nominally pick and choose what it is that you want to that you want to do in response to following me he says no no anyone anyone who wants to be my follower wants to be my disciple needs to behave this way and in this moment jesus declares something quite extraordinary he declares that there is only one category of disciple he, d- he uses this in- inclusive term to quite boldly say that there is only one way of following me there is only one class there is only one train there is an it's it's like there's no first class and economy class when it comes to following Jesus he basically declares that you're either on the plane or you're not it's there's no super devoted class and then a somewhat devoted class there's no my life is totally aligned to following Jesus and those where it's sort of you can pick and choose. He doesn't give us those categories. He doesn't make that option available. He says you're either on the plane or you're not. So I think it's so important for us to realize that when we look to following Jesus, he says on the front end of things, there's not two categories. There's not three categories. There's not multiple ways to look at this. You're either my follower or you're not. But then He goes on to give us the cost up front. He, he, he basically presents us with it. This is, what I love about this teaching is that it's not a bait and switch. It's not like a, invite everyone to a, a boxing match and then at the end proclaim the gospel. It's not, this, it's not a bait and switch type situation. What I love about this is Jesus, when He says, okay, you want to follow me, this is the cost. This is what it looks like and He doesn't pull any punches. In being honest about it, and so when he says, "Okay, this is what it looks like." Firstly, there is one one class, one group, one bus, one plane. There is only one way. There is there there is only one standard for following me, and every you're either in it, or you're not. That's the first truth. The second truth he declares to us is that discipleship is about God's plan, not yours. And this is where we get to the, the all the, the mentioning about. The families. Notice the planned progression. Let's have a look at it. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can't be my disciple. Well, hang on, Jesus. You told us to love. How is it that you can declare that we, if, that we need to hate in order to to be good enough for you. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Well, what's interesting is when you look back at the, uh, the original text and you look back at the Jewish rhetoric tradition, the way that they shaped arguments, the Jewish rabbis shaped arguments, they used contrast as a really powerful tool of illustrating this, not that type ideas. And one of the common ones was love and hate. That it wasn't necessarily that it there was. It wasn't the feelings of love and the feelings of hate. It wasn't a command of love and a command of hate. It was using the idea of how far hatred is from love to show how much higher one thing is from another. So when Jesus says, you need, if you don't hate your father and your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. What he's really saying is, or what we, uh, the way we need to hear it, I should say, because Jesus says, said what He said, but the way that we need to understand it is that our love for Jesus needs to be so far above and so different from the love that we have for every other part of our life, all the other relationships in our life. Jesus needs, our love for Him needs to be above all of those. It needs to be so far above, so far above as love is from hate that is what Jesus needs us to understand that to be his disciple we need to love him but there's something else here that I missed the first time I read through this and let's have a look at the people that are involved it talks about a father and he talks about a mother that's our family relationship the, the relationship the household we grew up in but then it talks about wife and children and the next household that we're involved in, the logical progression of our life is that we, we we're born, happens to all of us, we grow up in a household, whether it's father and or mother or, or, or grandparents bring us up or whatever our story, we grow up in a household of some form. And then at some point in our life, we progress to a household that we determine for ourselves, And that, for, for most guys, involves a wife or a partner, and it involves, for many people, children in some form. And so we see this picture and certainly in ancient sort of, in, in ancient culture, this was the progression. You grew up in your household, then you, you developed a household for yourself, which most of the time involved a spouse and it involved children. And then you had other relationships in your life, ones that were more, more sort of equal, brothers, sisters. And, and, that's, and so we see three pictures here. Father and mother, the household you grew up in. Wife and children, the household you create for yourself. Brothers and sisters, all the other relationships that you have in your life that are relatively equal, the ones that you choose, the ones that you don't choose. All of those. And he even goes on to say, and your own life too. So what is Jesus saying when he says, when he contrasts all of those things with our love for him? Well, what I think I see when I look at all of this is I see a progression of time, I see a plan. I see an, an idea of the way that life is meant to go, that we step through as we work our way. And I wonder for you, do you have a plan for your life? Do you have a plan, a strategy, a way that you expect things to go in your life? That you are calling or you're inviting or you're asking Jesus to fit into? Because I think one of the challenges we need to notice here, which is super important, is is that when it comes to following Jesus, if we try and fit Jesus into the progression of our life, into our life plan, into our life agenda, then Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Jesus says, that's not good enough. I'm not going to fit into your plans. I'm not going to be the one. I'm not just an additional add-on. To your, to your journey, to your plan for your life. I need to be the center of your life. And if I'm not, then you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. Jesus says, don't, find, don't try to fit me into the agenda for your life. Don't add me, hoping to gain all that I promise, in addition to the, you doing life the way that you want to. Jesus says, instead, you need to acknowledge that loving me for just me is the best offer that there is. And yes, throughout, through the relationship that we have with Jesus, as we follow him, we find richness in our relationships. We find, we find opportunities for significance. We find purpose. We find peace. But Jesus says, don't follow me to get those things. You follow me with everything you've got. You follow me above the other relationships. And you'll find that those things will start to work because of the way that I call you to live. Because of what it is that I promised you. But don't use your relationship with me to get what it is that you want. Be satisfied with the relationship and see what it is that I can do in your life as a result. So being a being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus, acknowledges that there is not—it's not multi, there's no multi classes. There is one plane, one bus, one train, one way, one class of disciple, and it also acknowledges. The discipleship and following Jesus is ultimately about God's plan, not ours. But the third thing that Jesus talks about here is he talks about taking up our cross. Let's read what he says. He says, And whoever, verse 27 and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, for those of us that are Christian, we have a sense of what the cross is talking about. The cross was the cross member of, a, um, of an ancient crucifix, and it was, which was a method of torture and punishment and ultimately execution in ancient Rome. These days, we, we have these crosses around our neck and, and we've almost romanticized them in a bunch of different ways. But the truth of it is that for the early early church, and indeed for Jesus himself, the cross meant something very different to what we understand it means in our culture today. But one of the things that is significant and was that within the... Within the process of crucifixion, quite often those that were to be crucified and were sentenced to die by crucifixion were often required to carry their crossbeam that they were to be crucified on through the town as a public declaration of guilt and submission to the might and to the authority of Rome. We see in the narratives of the gospel narratives that that's what Jesus was called to do as well. And so when Jesus says, "Okay, we need, I need you, you need to carry your cross," what is Jesus actually asking us to do? Well, Jesus is asking us to do the very same thing that carrying the cross before Rome meant. It meant coming under, submitting to, the might and the authority of Rome. He's saying, "If you you got to carry your cross," and what that means is to submit to meet, submit to Jesus, to His might, to His authority over your life, to the, to the supremacy of His teachings, to acknowledging that He is Lord and Savior of the world and seeing Him for who He really is. That's what it means to carry our cross in this context. But if we push that analogy, that teaching a little bit further, is Jesus asking us to carry our cross to to our death? Well, in a sense, He is. In a way, He is. Because when we choose to follow Jesus, what we're doing is we're accepting the gift of grace that He offers us through the cross. We die to our old life and are raised to new life in Christ when when we choose to follow Jesus. We acknowledge that when he died on the cross, he gave his life to forgive our sins. And that that gift of his life is a free gift of grace. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we deserve in any way. And so when he says that we're called to carry our cross, we are called to carry our cross to death. Because when we choose to follow Jesus, what we do is we die to our way of doing things. To our authority over our life and we pick up jesus authority jesus way of doing things jesus way of life and friend scripture teaches us that that life is one of abundance and when we when we choose to publicly declare what it means to become a follower of jesus to become a disciple what do we do we get baptized and baptism quite simply simply is the symbolic dying to ourselves down into the water And then coming out of the water, being raised up again with Christ to new life. That's what that means. We are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And so Jesus' call in verse 27 is that for us to be disciples, we must acknowledge and come under His ultimate authority as Lord and of, uh, of creation as our Savior and to follow. So So when we pull these three ideas that Jesus presents to us together, we get a very clear picture of a life that looks radically different to those around it. When we say that we are all in, when we say that we want to orient our life around Jesus and our love for Him over and above our own plans and the plans that we have for our life, if we are willing to come under our teaching, and the authority by carrying our cross, if we are willing to acknowledge those things as a disciple, as Jesus calls us to, the truth is our life is radically transformed. It can't not be. Friends, authentic and genuine faith needs to impact every part of our life. It'll impact our attitude to our work. It'll impact our work ethic. It'll impact how we spend our money, the way that we give away a portion of our income to to the local church. It affects how we treat others, how we spend our time, the way that we look after the environment, how we treat the, the poor. It impacts our character. It impacts our ethics and our values. It's everything. It's everything. And what I find so interesting about it is, Jesus is unapologetically clear about the standard and about the cost. And why is he unapologetic about it? Why is he is he not afraid to say up front what it'll cost? You gotta love me more than everyone else. You gotta follow me more than everyone else. You gotta put aside your life and follow my will for your life. Why is it that He's not afraid to, to, to set that standard for us as followers? Well, I think He's not afraid because He knows it's worth it. He's not afraid of calling us to follow Him with everything we've got because He knows that when we do, it's worth it and it's better than anything else. Because there's no higher Lord that we can serve and there is no better offer in all of creation than the good news of salvation found in Jesus. So friends, when it comes to following Jesus, there's only one road. There's only one standard. And it's high. It is high. And I wish it wasn't because it means that when I share this stuff, it's it's a bit more palatable. But I got to believe that following Jesus is worth it. And I do believe that. And I believe the people are looking. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this might be your experience. You're looking for something different to what the world is offering. Why? Because the world around us feels like it's going crazy sometimes. I mean, sometimes more often than not. And we start, we leave ourselves wondering, is there anything else out there? Something's got to be better, a better offer than what I'm looking at in my life right now. And if we were to say to people, yes, we have a better offer, it's found in Jesus, but to be honest, nothing much really needs to change about your life, you just sort of accept Jesus and and, and keep going the way things were before, I think people call that out and go, but I don't want, I don't want my life to look no different, I don't want my life to be the same as it was before, if I'm meant to be following the Lord of creation, He I'm hoping He has a better plan for my life than I do because mine's not working. And so friends, that's the call and that's why I think it matters. And so as we finish, as I draw this idea to a close, I believe Jesus calls us to a radically different life. I believe that following Him is a high bar. To be considered one of His disciples is not a nominal Christianity where everything looks largely the same we just sometimes go to church on a Sunday. I believe Jesus' calling as a disciple, His calling that includes everyone, His calling that calls us to love Him more than everything else, and His calling to carry our cross and come under His teaching, will cost us more than we want. But as a result, will give us more than we could possibly imagine. And I, for one, think that's worth the cost. Let's pray together. Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that speaks into our life. And Lord, I know this is a challenging teaching because it it takes us to an uncomfortable place. But Lord, you you weren't unapologetic about setting this standard. You weren't sorry for it. You didn't try and make it more palatable because you knew that for those that saw it for what it really was, we would realize it's worth it and do it anyway. And so, Lord, today we want to acknowledge that. We want to do that. We want to see your offer of discipleship for what it really is and do it anyway. Help us to count the cost of your abundant grace for our life. Help us to realize what it cost you to give it to us and help us to realize that as we choose to follow you, there will be a cost. And if we look around at our life and can't see it, if we can't see the ways that we are called to compromise our everyday life and our agendas and our things to follow you, if we can't see the sacrifices, Lord, convict us and help us realize that maybe we're not as committed as we thought we were. Lord, would you give us the grace to receive that? And ultimately, Lord, would you give us the courage to take a step forward in what it means to be your follower, that we might experience the life of fullness that you have on offer, knowing that you are the highest Lord there is and that what you offer is better than anything else we can find. In your name we pray, amen.